Hello again and welcome to another episode of Crossing the Threshold. Super excited about this one. This week, Nikki and I sat down with Hector Aristizabal, uh, who joined us from Colombia. Yeah, a... Hector is a um, is the, the founder of an amazing organisation called Imagine Action. They do incredible work um, in war-tour zones and with communities um, in, all over the world. Um, and... They, his work is very much about uh, linking the suffering and opportunity and um, taking pain and transforming it into something new and something with kind of real shift of, of story. Hector's had an absolutely incredible life and has lived through some, some of the most dangerous experiences a human could go through. So we really hope that you get a sense of his his amazingness through um, our conversation. Right, let's play. <laughs> Hector, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast this week. Thank you, Max, and thank you, Nikki, for, for the invitation. It's a yeah. pleasure. Yeah, thank you. I know you're, jo- you're joining us all the way from Colombia. Whereabouts exactly are you in Colombia? Um, right now, I am in a rural area near Medellin, which is the second largest city in Colombia, and is the city where I grew up, uh, where I lived for the first 28 years of my life. Before I was forced to exile, I was another 28 years outside of the country. And then I returned three, four years ago uh, because of the peace process. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. But that's where I am right now. I thought we'd start just by getting a sense from you about how you're feeling in these weird and crazy and wonderful, confusing, challenging times that we're facing at the moment. Uh, Absolutely. I, I, you know, I feel that every moment in our lives, uh, we have been preparing for this moment our entire lives. And that somehow what is happening right now, whether we are conscious of not, whether we like it or not, is what we all have been waiting for. At, at least I am feeling that way more and more as the consequences of COVID-19 or the pandemic uh, evolve. And, and yes, I am very conscious of the uh, deep suffering that it has caused in the world. Although I don't feel that it's so much caused by the virus, the, the appearance of this virus, or, or the way that we as humanity have decided to react to it. Because I think that we have been mostly reacting, not responding. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we reacted, and, and I'm fascinated by, by how governments and countries and humans, uh, we, we have decided to, to respond to this. Um, because the, there will be consequences that, uh, that we can only imagine uh, right now. Uh, so I am aware of the suffering, but it's a suffering that has been here before. Mm-hmm. COVID has simply unveiled many of the things, make visible many of the invisibles, uh, the collapses of our health system, for example, how yeah. weak our health system are all over the world especially in so-called first world countries. I don't believe in that, but 
because every country has developed in the way that it has been allowed to develop. Mm. Uh, and then our educational system, our social networks, our social fabric, COVID has shown us how weak uh, all of these systems are, mm. our economic system, uh, the, our belief systems, and COVID has really told us as humanity, I guess for the first time in history, stop, just stop and look yeah. at your goals and look at what you're doing. And I, I don't know how many of us have been able to do that, but I see more movement than ever in my life. And this other movement that we are part of right now in this conversation, we, I have had conversations with more people in the last six months, eight months than in, in my entire life, <laughs> traveling all over the world, literally. I mean, I traveled to over 50 countries, which was an amazing privilege. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but now I am connected, especially with Colombians in this uh, 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 worldwide networks. And I didn't um, know there were other people interested in so many things, and you guys uh, yeah. now here because we somehow worship the same God together, the same <laughs> and, uh, It's great, it's great. So I'm feeling very good. Also, personally, I, I was very lucky that I was in the pandemic in, in a rural area. I can walk. I have ne really not yeah. barely where the masks, except when I go to, to visit my family in Medellin. And, and I have been able to grow my own food for the first time. So now I eat my own salad. Uh, I don't grow everything, but I, I am connected more than ever to the local place. So I'm working now on the localization movement, which is a response mm -hmm. to the globalization movement uh, with people around me. I talk to my neighbors, as I never did before, because I was always traveling, even here in Colombia. And, and many things, this coming back to the essential uh, has been a gift that none of us could ever imagine. Uh, so I'm feeling very optimistic. I, I'm feeling very connected to what is being asked of all of us, I think, which is to give birth to a new world. Mm -hmm. the, the old world no longer exists. It's gone. Mm -hmm. What we used to call normal, that was completely abnormal. It's not here anymore. So. We don't know what's next, but we're ready. I think that m many, many people are really doing fascinating things. Mm. That's a long answer, but... <laughs> no, that's <laughs> a beautiful answer. Yeah. Important to hear some optimism and hype and positivity amongst some of the more uh, negative views on it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I've, what I've witnessed as well is that people have really filled that kind of question what it is they value filling their time with and refilled it with things like growing, fr growing fruits and veg like you have, walking in nature, reconnecting, essentially. Uh, and reconnecting to ourselves because we have more time for ourselves, mm. reconnecting to each other, to the people around us, mostly family and, and neighbors, because, for example, mm. we're taking care of two older neighbors and we're feeding them every day and it feels very good and i see yeah. acts of solidarity and and connectivity everywhere and then reconnecting to the most important disconnection that we have been living under the most important separation which is the separation of humans from the natural world yeah that is all horrible a big lie that one isn't it? A big lie that we have been sold especially in the past <laughs> years that we humans are superior to nature, that, we, that nature is at our service and, and we believe it and then we develop this industrialized world mm. 
and transformed the Mother Earth from a living being and all these beings in it into objects and things that we could exploit and transform into, into things and then throw them. Because more than half of the things that are produced in the world go to landfills or to the ocean. They are not Bunkers, used. isn't it? Yes, uh, which is uh, unheard of. But, uh, but that's what we have been doing in the last, mm. especially 300 years. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we are reconnecting to what, mm. who, who we are, I hope, mm. in a big scale right now. And just for those listening, I'm really keen to draw attention to you know, this optimistic uh, perspective that Hector's sharing here, that you're sharing here is, you know, that's a li- it's a life's work to be able to sit in such a place of um, being with the, diff- you know, being with, seeing a challenge like COVID and the difficulties that we see in life and seeing the blessings in those and, you know, the title of your book, the the blessing in the wound obviously speaks to this journey you've been on, which feel uh, this journey you've been on in your life of being sitting with the difficulty and the pain and the suffering of life, and how that re- reconnects us to uh, life itself, to what is important. Yeah, l- life wants life, you know. And uh, yeah. what I have learned through all the ordeals that I have gone through um, is uh, is to overcome and to try to find meaning in the things that happen, mm. uh, not see them as, as how unlucky I am or how poor I am or how, uh, how much of a victim I have been. Uh, but yes, there are horrible things that we have done to each other and that we have done to the earth. And they had horrible things that I had witnessed and that had perpetrated. I was tortured by an army that had no reason to do that. But I mean, there is never a reason to torture anyone. Mm witnessed many beautiful friends kill, disappear. We're still looking for many of the people that went to school with me. When I was young, I, I, the people I grew up with, most of the kids that I play soccer with and, and fought and, and, and laugh, they are dead because they became the servants of the three big armies, the, the army and, and the paramilitaries and the, and the guerrilla and then the mafia because many of us were very poor economically and some saw the pathway to to money yeah so i witnessed all of that but i was lucky that i also found other sources of feeding my soul and in my case it was literature first and i devoured books when i was 10 12 13 14 and i and i became an adventurer uh, with julius Verne, for example i read 37 of his books wow. i said to read them all until i found it was <laughs> and, and I, I was into something else fortunately but but I died many times on World War II, uh, reading lots of books about what happened uh, mm. to the Jewish people. And, and, then, and then I started doing theater. And theater allowed me to become uh, other characters, you know, to just not be this guy in this, uh, in this small place, in this barrio where everybody was poor and dying and violent. And I was able to, to use my imagination and travel. Uh, and then theater somehow opened the world to me and allowed me to become many of the things that each one of us are. We are many characters inside of us and we have the opportunity to imagine and sometimes the, the, the privilege to live our lives. I never thought that I was going to travel, never. My parents never did. Uh, mm-hmm. It was horrible for me. And, and even when I went to the United States in exile and I worked as a therapist and 
yes, I made enough money to travel with my kids, mostly to come back to Colombia and visit the, the family. But then when life opened to me, and actually it opened when I created a play about my experience with torture and the assassination of my brother. So I said this, that when I opened the chamber of torture, the world came in. Mm. When I opened my wound, somehow there was a blessing, there was a medicine there that I could share with the world. Mm. And then I started being invited to places, and then I started doing workshops using theater, uh, mostly theater audio press, and then other, other methodologies. And, and it was amazing that, that because I did two, I went to school to, to, to study psychology here in Colombia, and then I, I did an MFP, a marriage family therapy in the United States because they did not accept my degree from here. And I was never told that my story was important. And I never believed that. So I often, I never talk about my story until I was maybe 30 years old. But then uh, somehow I discovered that where else can you find value but in your own book, in the book of your life, in the story of your life, in the myth that is unfolding uh, mm. through all of us. Because each one of us is living an, a unique life, an authentic life. And when I did the play, I became the author of my life, not the victim mm. of torture or whatever, but the author. And that's somehow what I have been able to share with groups all over the world, with people who never heard the word theater. I had done theater with them because it's a capacity. Imagination is our most basic human right. And we had the capacity to, to find meaning in our stories if we were given the opportunity. Mm. And especially with young people, it's very important. I think I, I ended up, because you mentioned that you guys are working with young people, and they were the ones who inspired me, working with gang members, working in prisons, and looking at all these kids that felt lost. The United States is very interesting because it's a culture that loves youthfulness, yeah. you know, looking young and, well, it's and fixed on it. plastic mm. surgeries, etc. but hates its young people, especially yeah. its young people of color, its yeah. young people that are the other, and therefore is the country that kills the most people in the world. Uh, over 35,000 people kill themselves in the United States, mostly young males, uh, in gang warfare, or the ones who go to the army and are sent to become killers, not warriors, killers, mm. of other people that have nothing to do with them. And, and then they come back. Actually, the, most of the people that had died because of the last wars in Afghanistan, or invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, because there are no wars there, there is an invasion. And most of the people died had committed suicide. Mm. More people have committed suicide than being killed in the, in the war. But coming back to young people, that's how I try to understand drive-by shootings, for example, mm -hmm. or rituals that they have pseudo-initiatory rituals of being jumped in into a gang. And I was thinking, what is here? And there was an archetypal need and desire to belong to something else and to be seen, which is what traditional societies used to do uh, in a very conscious way, in a, in a very sophisticated and beautiful way through the rites of passage of the rituals of initiation. So that's how I ended up uh, looking at that and also working with end of life, which is when I learned the most about life is when you see someone die, when you are a midwife into someone's death and yeah. you are the only one there when they take that last eternal breath. It's amazing how long mm. it lasts, the last breath. Then I was thinking, how can I honor and help the family honor 
the life of this person that just left. So that's how I became very interested in mythology and, and rites of passage and rituals. It's an understanding that has given me a lot in, in, in my life. And then understanding my own life process, not as, oh, these terrible things that happened to me, but also what died when I went through torture or when I went through divorce or when I became an exile. And then in that woundedness, there is also the wound of what is born, of mm. the, new, the new life, the new you. I really love that expression of how our wounds can be the tomb of what needs to die and the womb of what needs to be born. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I remember hearing you say that before and it's really stuck with me. Yeah, yeah and I, I just want to actually pick up on something really live, just he hearing you about um, you know, this like, notion that we value youth, yet there's, there's no spaces really for our young people, the, the adolescents, to be seen in, in our world today. And, and working in schools, I actually see that the, the theatre is a place where they feel like they can be seen and they can really express um, their pains, especially now a lot of young people, their devices and things they're creating is around really raw, hard mental health. And I'd be, I'd really love to hear a bit more about um, how you feel, see theatre as a vehicle, or what people need to be able to kind of share their their stories of pain or take their their uh, current situations of of you know, real challenge and, and turn that around from adversity into resilience? Uh, in my case, it was theater, but it, it, that was the, uh, actually I started doing theater and I realized this when I was 22 years old, I started doing theater when I was five <laughs> and I went to kindergarten and my teacher, <laughs> taught, Doña Lucila, taught us how to read and write. I learned like when I was in five months because it was a game. She taught us how to play. And then I love learning and I have never stopped doing that and thanking her for that. But then she also put makeup on us, put uh, costumes and taught us the basic dances of cumbia and mapale and all these traditional dances in Colombia. And then I had teachers with no imagination, except maybe in, in, in fifth grade where a teacher read to us in every class the, the books of Tomás Carrasquilla, uh, basic writer from Colombia. And I was fascinated with the worlds that opened up for me. And, and I guess, as I said at the beginning, that saved me during, young, during my youth from becoming a killer. Mm. Because everybody around me was becoming a killer. And, and because of ideology, ideological means, or etc. So, and then when I was tortured, for example, I became a character. I dissociated, like most of us, when we're going mm -hmm. through a traumatic event, I left my body while they were putting electricity and heating me and, and starving me and et cetera, et cetera. But then I was also building a character that I thought would, would allow me to survive the ordeal. Whatever it was, I, I'm not going to go into those details because uh, it's not important right now, but it was somehow my, one of my uh, many moments of initiation. I cannot say that the army was doing that to me to initiate me into life. No, they wanted to destroy me. And, and indeed, they probably killed many things in me. They killed innocents and they killed many things. But what happens at those ordeals also is that something awakened in us 
the internal resources that we don't know we have. In my case, is imagination, is the capacity to transform and to and to express myself in many different ways without losing myself. Because you can exist to survive, but then you have to reintegrate. And also, I had therapy, and I have later on I have vipassana and, and, and medicinal plants like ayahuasca and, and etc. So. So those had been paths for me, for other people are others. Other people use poetry, other people use literature, mm. people use therapy. And hopefully, more and more people now can use uh, rites of passage, which have almost disappeared uh, throughout history, yeah. especially in the last 300 years during capitalism, because it's not important to initiate anyone except in becoming consumers. We all have been initiated. Factory workers, yeah. <laughs> And, and, and our education is also based to, re, to simply become a consumer. Educare, to lead out, to lead the spirit of the mm. person out, is not what we do in college or in schools. We just pack in information yeah. and, and make you believe that you are nobody, that you are an accidental person in an accidental world, and, and that you are empty, and therefore you need to be filled. And you can never fill yourself enough with things that you, are, that you don't really need. Initiation was the opposite. In initiatory processes, there are two moments. One is that you belong to a community. You are from the Dagara tribe and not this other tribe. You are a creep, or you are a blood, or you are a Mara Salvatrucha, or you are an 18th street. But what happened in those pseudo-initiations, I, I mentioned the real ones and the pseudo ones, is, is that also you are seen. Someone needs to see yeah. you, and that was the role of the mentor. The mentor was someone that could see your gift and bless it and say, you know what? You're very good with birds. You're very good at listening to the bird and you know what's going on. And you're very good at reading the, tra the, the footprints of the animals. So you're, a, you're going to become a good hunter. Or you're very good with herbs. And, and my dear, you're going to be a healer, etc. You're very good with math. So you, someone needs to see your gifts and your talent. And you need to feel seen. There were respect is to be seen um, because if not, we don't survive. We don't survive. I don't care what profession you have. Mm -hmm. You will end up at 50 with money and completely sick because you don't know who you are. Yeah. And, and then the midwife, the, the midlife crisis, and etc. So, so in initiation, it's also the initiation of the elder to be is the end of the childhood. Indeed, in, in tribes, people die because the child dies symbolically. Uh, and there is an ordeal, and then you are marked in your body to show that you went through it, and now you are an adult. I went to Benin with my friend, and, and, and I, I realized something that he had told me, no woman will touch you if you are not circumcised, because one of the signs of going through initiation in, in that tribe is that you are circumcised, and now everybody knows, all the women know you are, and now you went through initiation. So it's... it's we don't have that. And for me, when I was working with young people, it was very important to create uh, moments, experiences that were as strong, uh, although different, mm -hmm. than a drive-by shooting or a jumping yeah. where you get beaten for a minute by seven guys, big guys, and there is blood and, and muckers and, and broken bones, and then now you're a homie. I did that through theater. Mm -hmm. So I invited these kids, often the kids who were not seen, often the kids who were in trouble. I don't know anyone who is not in trouble, but the kids who were labeled as such, which was a gift somehow. And then we did plays about their lives, about how they survived gang warfare as they walk from, from home to school, 
how they survive being immigrants and coming and not knowing the language, the culture, etc. But how we could see the gift on these kids, the capacity they have, the trickster uh, energy in them, etc. Yeah. And then I made sure that everybody came to see them. So I remember this kid who was a break dancer and he could literally dance in his eyebrows. I saw him dance. <laughs> And, and then I, I rented a, a light and I put on a smoke machine because they love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> very cursy, very cheesy. But, and then at the end, the, the final moment was he died by doing breakdancing and the audience just went crazy. Just <laughs> 15, 20 years ago. And then his mom just came to me and said, wow, I can't believe you, you allowed you to make my kid do that. She was so proud. She was a Salvadorian. And she said, but this, my kid is going to kill himself. And I said, yes. And if I was his father, I would chain him and he would still dance because that's who he is, you know? Yeah. But anyway, moments like that, that the kids could be seen, uh, some of them probably would not survive. But, mm -hmm. but at least even if your life was cut short, there was a moment in which your beauty, your uniqueness mm -hmm. uh, grew and was seen because the role of the community is to see, is to mm -hmm. be a witness. And that's something that we don't have in this competi competitive, capitalist, individualistic. Yeah. No one can initiate himself, even if he has plenty of money. Is mm -hmm. not look at the most of the leaders today, especially in the United States. Those are not people who yeah. have been initiated. I don't care how many bankruptcies they have declared. Mm. And you're right that that witnessing from the community is so essential to that transformation or that experience being carried through life you know i think in in western cultures you often have you know youth going on these big trips big expeditions going away and they come back and no one in their home communities knows what's happened no it's not held you know it's not there's not a story that they can share or that they can uh say you know be you know, their parents or mentors say wow that was like we really saw you be independent and be responsible. Yeah. Something else you, you said there just made me think about the importance of um, how being witnessed also deepens our sense of uh, place and belonging into a community in a sense that, and in that way, builds our sense of purpose. And our, you know, if if we're witnessed in what we can offer and what. We, if we're witnessed in what we offer and the value that we provide, that also comes with, okay, I've got, I've got a sense of, there's meaning and purpose to my place in this community. And you have a role, yes. You yeah. have a, you have yeah. a, I mean, I, I, I subscribe to this whole idea that every single being comes to the world carrying gifts. Mm. Carrying what they call, the, the Greeks call the diamond, uh, the Romans call the genius, but not the IQ of a hundred and something no is that we all mm. have a genius a unique way to experience yeah. life a unique style that is only used your style and then a medicine and the medicine we discover in the ordeals what happened to us in life and how we deal with it how we transmute what happens to us uh, but then even though the gift is in us like the gold is inside the, the entrails of the earth it needs to be seen, mm. it needs to be blessed. Otherwise, what we have, I think, and we have plenty of it, is unfinished initiation. Yeah. Like we have unfinished grief. 
we, we lose people every single day, but we don't grieve. We don't do the proper mourning process, mm. uh, the el duelo. And so we bury them in ourselves. We bury them in our bodies. Yeah? And they become cancer and they become all kinds of problems. Um, so, yes, we have lost ritual. And for me, the, the return of ritual is one of the most crucial things that we have to do as a society. And at least that's what I discovered because I was using theater mostly to work with communities in creating plays about the issues that they didn't know how to resolve and then involve the audience in finding alternatives. Not the answer, but alternatives. Uh, that was the work of foreign theater created by Augusto Boal. But then the stories that were told went beyond that conversation, that sociological, psychological conversation. Mm -hmm. Because many people talk about dead people, talk about um, leaving everything in, in Syria. When I work with Syrian refugees in Aleppo, near, near Aleppo in, in Gaziantep, in Turkey, etc. So uh, I said, what can we do with this? And that's where I started designing rituals with the community as a response to the woundedness that appeared. And then it was a way not to resolve it, but to dissolve the whole thing into a song, into burying a, a rock, into writing the names in leaves and put them in the river. Into I mean, the rituals are in all of us. Yeah. They are in our bones. We just need to awaken them. Yeah. Because we are ritualistic beings, we are symbolic, a, yeah. and, One and of, we are starving for, for ritual. Yeah, go, go ahead, man. I just had a, I was sitting with a challenge in my head around you know, the initiations that we see throughout time always involve a risk of death or a risk of potential death, <laughs> perceived death, that may be. And, you know, we're, we're also as the visionaries in the business of uh, helping to create healthy initiations for young people and one of the questions I quite often sit with is how do we recreate that risk in a culture that is not prepared to sign off the risk of death <laughs> but not, not prepared to embrace that risk in the way that it has always existed in our uh, in humanity I'm so happy with your question. I, great <laughs> one. <laughs> I'm very happy with the question. I've never been asked this question, and I think it's great. Uh, there are two things, actually. Even Or how do we mark that the person went through initiation by scarifying them yeah. or cutting them? You know, yeah. I remember with Michael Mead, Malidoma Somme, and, and uh, uh, when, uh, which are two of the people that I have learned the most about ritual and and the importance of ritual mm -hmm. and, and the sport, the importance of myth and storytelling. And it was that we had these gang members. I brought these gang members from LA or gang members from, from, uh, from Chicago or from New York. And, and these motherfuckers were intimidated. You know, when you <laughs> didn't know them, they, they, they drive an armor vehicle, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And the, the killing stare, they look at you and you feel that you move because they can make a hole in the ground, you know. <laughs> but behind that, what I learned is that there was a child, a small, tender child that had been hurt and therefore had to build this armor around them. Mm. And I met them in prisons and I met them in, in, in all the barrios. And, and once I learned to see the, the tender child behind, I got 
a little bit more relaxed with the with the presentation. But then, and it was funny. We did this ritual, and at the end, we said we, uh, Malidoma taught us how to create an amulet of of protection because many of them have received death threats. And actually, it was the time that they helped me process the, the, the assassination of my brother. I called Michael Mead from Medellin and I say, I just found my brother cut in pieces and I don't know what to do. And he said, as soon as you get to the United States, come to, to Chicago. We are having a gathering of men and we will welcome you. And, and for me, it saved my life. It really saved. But Mali Doma taught us how to create this amulet. And the amulet had to have among the tail of a horse and, and all kinds of beautiful things a piece of blood. So we found these things to purse the, the finger of these guys to put the blood in the thing. Oh my God, I could see these killers, these serial killers apparently, like almost frenzied. You know, they, they were so scared of this little pinch. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going back to your question. Back to your question. So two things. I really don't, I see kids and people um, taking risky behaviors every single day. Yeah. And guns are probably the most obvious thing, but the army is another way. Driving a, a car uh, 60 miles an hour while drinking and, and reaching in the back to I don't know whose legs, all these things, we are constantly putting our lives in danger. Yeah. However, the death that needs to happen is not the real death. That's happening all the time and it doesn't initiate anyone. It's a symbolic death. Yeah. And, and there are simple things, like when, with the School of Lost Borders, uh, they said very beautifully, after four days, after three days in nature, by yourself, with your sleeping bag, all your culture, all your civilization disappeared. You know, it disappeared. Yeah. Your PhDs or your whatever because you are alone in this huge thing, in the desert, in the jungle, in the, in the forest. And you realize how small we are, how important we are, how connected we are to yeah. the soil and to the stars. We, you can drink the milk of the, of the Via Lactea, uh, and you can see the star that has your name, as the Australian Aboriginal people say. You can see it because it talks to you, it speakers, you know. <laughs> uh, and, and that's death. Because you are no longer the same. So it doesn't have to be something like when I witnessed with the Maasai who are surrounded by lions and they had to confront a lion with a spear, not with a gang, because they know that lions, when they don't find a game, they can come into the village. And the young men have to be able to protect the village, but not by killing the lion, because the lion at the same time is seen as a god. So it's an ally, it's not an enemy, but the lion eats. <laughs> and if they don't find... A gazelle, they can come to the village and find a baby or, or, or whoever. So, but not all initiations are that dramatic. I, I will argue that our lives, our modern lives, are more dangerous than what I just described for the Maasai. It's infinitely more dangerous. I work mostly with gang members, with people who have come surviving war, or people who have survived natural disasters. And therefore, you don't need to mark them. They are already marked. Mm. And I really don't know in modern life anyone who has it. Any, I, don't, I haven't met anyone who is not seriously wounded. I work in a lot of universities in the United States with very wealthy kids. Kids who came to see my play and they were like, 
looking at me like I was this uh, hero, this amazing human being. And then I sat with them and heard their stories. And they say, I see my dad every three months. And my mom is an alcoholic because, she, you know, she goes to the club and kids who had been abandoned and live in castles and, live, and had, I don't know how many yachts and, and they could go to Bali on the weekend with two friends. And, oh, wow, man, the, the loneliness, the, mm. the, the woundedness in their soul. There is no one more wounded than the people who think, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here. You know, nothing mm. has happened to me. That is a huge wound, you know? So I, I feel that we need to open our imagination and to understand that a lot of this is symbolic, but that life is so frail, so frail, especially in modern world, the way we eat, the way we're treating our bodies, the way we're treating each other. Look at the United States right now. I mean, just being a black man in the United States is, is, is about survival every single day. Yeah or a Latino kid, or, or a poor kid in general. It doesn't matter what the color is. Being a Muslim, being an Arab in certain parts of the world. Um, so it's, I, I don't think we need to worry about that because it's happening. What is not happening is the blessing. What is not happening is the capacity to symbolize the things that have happened to us. And I think you mentioned it earlier. It needs the witnessing of, of, of the community. Because we can go through unfinished initiations back and forth. I know kids who have gone to prison back and forth, survived prison, but no one was waiting for them to say, man, you survived prison. Wow, thank you. And you paid your dues to this society that is a mm -hmm. criminal society. You are not the criminal. It's the society. Yeah. That criminal, the criminal justice. Criminalized you, yeah. Et cetera. So, so I feel that we need the role of people like you and programs in schools and, and, and after school programs, etc., everywhere that can see what young people are going through regardless of their economic, social privilege. Because I can That's tell the, yeah. they are going through a lot. They are going through a lot. Yeah, I, really ap I, I appreciate you, like given the context of who you've met that you are really see that we all walk that our paths and live with whether it, you know that pain or trauma and experience and actually I'd never thought about it until now but ritual itself is theater and it's it's almost like really it's giving death to a story that no longer serves you and almost you know rebirthing a new story which then can create purpose and direction and power and something I think not only within the community but what screams out that I think is missing and I imagine you've been that for many many people um, through your performance and your work but is a mentor is someone that says like wow I really see you and um, we've skipped quite a lot of generations because even the parents aren't seeing their own children because they haven't had that so yeah I just I just want to honor that that actually it's ritual is theater and we can all participate <laughs> oh. so it's how we uh, yeah how we create more spaces for that and and it's and we talked at the beginning about all of a sudden we have now time and space and i i hope what we do with it will be something more meaningful 
it's a great moment. I mean, COVID is somehow the first time that I know in history that we are all going through, all of us in, in, in the world as humanity are going through a rite of passage. I go through this ritual of initiation where the old world is no longer there because nothing is there. Um, and we realize what, uh, what, actually what a very young person, Greta Thunberg, has been saying for the last three years, that we can't stop. And everybody thought, she's cute and sweet and intelligent, <laughs> but she's crazy. And, and no, it was real. We could stop all the factories. We could put almost 7 billion people in, in their homes, if they had a home or whatever they had, and airplanes will not be flying in the skies. If I told you this, this conversation took place six months ago, yeah. and, I took, and I told you this, you too will be very concerned. Let's find someone who knows exercises out because it's <laughs> professional help, you know. <laughs> but now, everybody, we know, we know this. And, and we are, uh, and I really think that this is, we are being asked to connect to our gift, all of us, and all of us have it. And to connect to it right now, whatever training you have, whatever experiences you have had in life, dramatic or not, uh, and bring your gift to the world and bring your medicine to the world because the world needs it. And everywhere we look has to change. Education, mm-hmm. economics, uh, every, every single thing, especially the most basic thing, which is our relationship to the, mother, to, to the earth. Yeah. And, and so we have so much to do. We have to regenerate life in every sense of it, with our dreams as humans and with nature, with reforesting, and with, uh, we have to replant everything, you know? Yeah. We have to come back to, to at least 50, per- if we kept everything that is right now, the Amazon basin, and which we're not, we're burning it and reforesting it, never before, but, but if we could keep it, it's not enough the collapse of the ecosystems is already granted. So we need to regenerate. And that's a lot of the work that we're doing now with, with this program called Reconectando here in Colombia. It's inviting ex-combatants and victims and everybody who comes to participate in it, which is like a rite of passage. What we hope is that the way people come in is not the way they live. Yeah. And, and that they all come and with the, with the understanding that we all are gifted, that we all have something to do, something to give to, the, to life, and that this is the moment. Mm-hmm. It's not tomorrow. We, we don't have to wait. It's now, it's urgent. As Greta Thunberg, a, a young woman, 14, 15, 16 now, uh, has told the, the world leaders, and they have nothing to say. You know, it's the beauty of youth. Yeah. So we need to initiate our young people so they can give us their gifts. And that was the role of the elders, which is the other crisis that we have. If we don't have elders, we have olders. We have the biggest number of old people in history, and olderhood leads to decrepitude, you know, to forgetting who you are in a society that forgets who you are. But elderhood is simply the fact that a person, it doesn't matter their chronological age, knows what they are here for and gives it. Mm. And, 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 and as they say, when you discover what is your gift, the more you give it, the more you have to give. So it's not like something you're going to sell so no one can find out. And yeah, that's good, but, but mm. that's not your gift. Yeah. I mean, it's even in a, it's written, that false ideal is written to our language where we, you know, we say the word retired as if you're retired from life, you know, you're, you're expired from duty. 
I want to return quickly to uh, how COVID has really reconnected us as a as a entire global community to this shared story of being a, a human on this tiny little blue marble that's floating in uh, in space, and how we've realised, like in a vision quest or you know spending time in nature, you reconnect to your sense of place in the in the bigger picture. How it really is the first time we've all had this, like you said, we've had this shared experience that we are, we all feel connected on. You know, obviously there's incredible differences in how we're all experiencing it, but there is uh, a universality or a feeling of universality that is quite unprecedented. And in that way, we're, it's connecting us to a story, a, new, a story that we can hold that, allows us to, um, it's a story that we can tell, you know, we can tell that gives connection. You know, it's, and mm. I, I guess I just want to pick up on the, this idea of storytelling, because obviously in theatre, in ritual, you are, you're, re, you're creating a story, you're recreating um, the story that you want to tell, and in, in enacting it, you're making it reality. I was curious I, to... I, we all do it all the time. I mean, we, we are constantly reweaving, re-signifying our stories. Mm. You are giving me the chance to retell my story and then hear things I never heard before coming out of my mouth. Yeah. So it's, uh, but it's thanks to having your, your deep listening, which is what most rituals are. It's just an opportunity for deep listening, for people mm. to share, to relate, to relatare what happened to them. That's what they do, used to do around the fire, the most basic ritual, the circle around the fire where the hunters come back and the women come back and the children and they all listen to what happened and why they, someone was able to get the buffalo and then he shared before I left, I asked the buffalo, I thank the buffalo for allowing me to bring him back to the village to feed all of us. And then the stories will, will evolve and because we are made out of stories and COVID, or uh, COVID-19, if I understand it correctly, it, it, as a virus, which we are more than 50% made out of viruses and fungus and bacteria, we are an amazing ecosystem. Our body is the most sophisticated, evolved ecosystem of all kinds of weird things. But, but COVID is an upgrade, which is preparing us to be able to survive the incredible pollution and, and deterioration of the environment that we have been able to, to accomplish. Uh, the, 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 the poisoning of the air, of the soil, of the water, uh, of our bodies, our gut, which is we eat this, this poison food and our guts get completely destroyed and then COVID comes and, and anyway. But, but that's the, more the scientific that is all over the place. But, <laughs> but although these guys are in a story of the, the, the horrible enemy, Mm -hmm. It is so absurd. COVID is an upgrade of our immune system. It's not an enemy, but when we make it an enemy, and we, uh, uh, then we miss the possibility to really learn what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, although it's also there, it's the crisis and the opportunity, it's always together. But the big story is that life and death are constantly surrounding us. Uh, nature is constantly giving us that lesson. We're just paying attention. You walk outside, there are dry leaves, 
there is a, a, a tree that fall, fell many years ago, and now lots of things are coming out of there, especially the mycelium and the fungus, uh, uh, that, uh, and the losongos, the mushrooms that come mm. out of it, more than 20,000, they're gorgeous. Some are eatable, <laughs> some are just beautiful, some are hallucinogenic, and some are poisonous, like life. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's always there. What we do with stories, I think, and what we do hopefully with therapy, and especially what we do in ritual, is that we go through the moments of death in our lives, of woundedness, and then we extract, like the mycelium, what is there to serve life, to continue serving our lives and the lives of others. When someone dies, the most important ritual is to celebrate the life so their spirit knows that they were seen, that they came to the world and they were fathers or mothers of people. They don't have to write books and, and lead revolutions or, or destroy the planet <laughs> as dictators. But, but uh, yeah, but all of us want to be seen as, as, as these embodied uh, spirits or, or souls uh, that left a print in, in the world. And I feel that that's also what the initiation does. It tells the kids, the young person, you have something to give and I see you. And that's the, the, the second bird. That's the bird that not your father, not your mother, I don't care how much they love you, they cannot give you that. Because you're my dad. I cannot see, I cannot uh, initiate my, my son or my daughter. Mm -hmm. I, my job is to love them unconditionally. But to bless when I see other people's kids and to offer my kids a village where they can be seen, where other people can see things that I will never be able to see in them because I'm blinded by the adoration that I have for them. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's an amazing moment to, to think about these things and to see how we are all weaving this uh, mycelium of the mystery of life uh, together. Mm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, 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 I when, like, when you were speaking, it kind of makes me go back to, you mentioned quite near the beginning about, um, you named your teacher in your early years. He taught you and he created space for imagination. And you also said it's kind of, it is an innate kind of character trait that we are born with. And then somewhere in, our like current education system it kills imagination and creativity and i i think that we're here at this opportunity where there is that choice of like how teachers hold the space to be also those those that could see the the student in the room and name their gifts so if you had like a, a message to um be it the young person themselves or the teacher or facilitator in the room, what, what could you tell them or what would you say to them about that remembering of seeing and, 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 and creating imagination? Like, Yeah, it is, is, uh, teaching is the most fascinating uh, mission in life and, and one of the least, uh, revere and, and uh, horribly paid in most countries that I know of. Mm -hmm. um, because it, it's, it's a, the task of the teacher is to see who is there. It's not to teach lessons. That's, that's 
nothing. And that's why so many teachers are so depressed today in a world that talks about a standardized education. That's the most absurd thing that who had ever been invented only by business. Uh, because there is no standard child. It, does, it has never been born a standard child, you know. They are all completely unique. And what you want is a unique child. You don't want a standard child. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but society is constantly trying to shape them as yeah. a standard. As mm. This is how you must look. And of course, you will never look like the beautiful thing and etc. So because they are building uh, uh, consumers. Imagination is the most revolutionary, the most dangerous and powerful force that exists. We cannot create a new world if we cannot imagine it. My work is to create spaces for imagination, for people to see what they want to do with their lives, with their community, with their organization, with their company, with whatever, you know, with their relationships. And, and, and school is, for a long time, it has not been teaching that. A school has become a death desert for both imagination and knowledge because knowledge comes with imagination. Uh, um, and the schools have also forgotten that oh, they have also been trapped in these separations, uh, human nature, men, women, also the left brain from the right brain, yeah. you know, the left brain, the logos, the place of logic, of, of cutting things in pieces to understand them, reducing them reductionism so we can manage it which mm -hmm. has led us to important things discoveries going to the moon etc etc driving the car all of that but there is another fly another part of us which is associated to the right brain which is the the mythos the the the, the intuition these other ways of knowing that had been cut from most schools it's coming back in some places fortunately but but it has been cut. The first thing to be cut, the arts, music, uh, even gymnastics, is all about math and, and reading. And most kids in the United States graduate and they don't know how to read. It's incredible. I mean, the, the failure of our educational system is immense. It should be destroyed. Most schools should disappear. Yeah. And actually, the big universities <laughs> are disappearing. And MIT is now creating a new uh, the U Lab, which is a fascinating, uh, fascinating uh, new discovery of how we learn, and and all these other experiments that are happening everywhere. But the worst thing you can do to a child is to take them to school today, to most schools, most ordinary schools. They are they, because their job is to kill the spirit. So going back to the teachers, wow, what an amazing job you have! It's hard for a teacher who has not been initiated, who doesn't know that they have gifts. To see it in their kids mm -hmm. it's quite the opposite uh, and it happens to parents also even if we're very loving is that if you don't know that you have a gift and your child is outrageous as they should be flamboyant as they should be unique colorful you know <laughs> biodiverse as, as <laughs> nature is and if you don't feel that you feel envy mm -hmm. and you do things to destroy them most of us have been mostly cursed by our parents and by most of our teachers. But it takes, like Doña Lucila, this woman in my kinder, that she saw something in me and she fed that seed in me enough for me to survive. Somehow. Mm. And, and of course, yeah, we need to find mentors. And, and for some of us, for me, most of my mentors during youth were books. 
and Marx and Freud and, uh, you know, the books of the time uh, that I had to let go afterwards because that's what happens with the mentor. You follow the mentor and then you discover you are no longer uh, with they are. Uh, you follow someone until you, what the Buddha is called, you find a pathless path. Just when you no longer see signs and then now you know you are in your path. And the Buddhists are beautiful. They say you find Buddha, kill him. So that's not Buddha, that's, that's your own projection of Buddha. Because you are after your own Buddhahood, after your own way. Because that's how we give to our community, by becoming who we are. It was uh, uh, this beautiful Northern Irish, uh, Oscar Wilde said, be yourself. Because everybody else yes, is taken. taken. I love that. Uh, that's on the front of my door at school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks for that. I think in our, our listeners, uh, even just a young person hearing that can be like, oh, yeah, great. I don't need a physical person, but even a book that can inspire them that has nothing to do with their education system as a mentor. That's, that's really powerful. I think that's a really beautiful place to, to end, actually, this idea that uh, you know, whatever we uh, think about the existence of schools this idea that children individuals are unique in seeds growing in in this biodiverse universe and actually as educators the best thing we can do is water them and allow their inherent potential to grow you know, we're not doing the growing as educators they are they're growing we're just creating the conditions around uh, to, uh, to help them flourish. It's beautiful to be a teacher because you have these amazing, unique beings that come to your class to teach you. Mm. And all you have to do is to get out of the way. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, yes, and, and, and give them things to, to challenge them because hopefully you, you know a little bit more about Invite life. Invite the imagination. Yeah. But, but yes, to just challenge them constantly yeah. to to themselves, not to your stupid standardized testing, mm. because then you will be killing yourself first and then killing them. Yeah, and I guess that is the, the metaphor is that we're all teachers and we're all students. We're not in the space to teach them something or impart the knowledge. We're there to hold the space to actually learn together. And um, Is there a pedagogy of the oppressed? It's yeah. called amazing gift to the world, yes. Mm. Absolutely. Hector, I feel like we'll have to come back to you when we come to opening up a school, dare I, dare I call it that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, share our share ideas more. Yeah, that's the dream. Thanks All so right. much for joining us this week. Yeah, thank you so pleasure. much for your wisdom, your time, your um, just just your inspiration and, and actually painting some real, real pictures to the work that you're doing. And um We'd like to share uh, some of that work in our show notes. So please do um, wow. share any of the links of, of the, your organization um, and, and the work that you're currently doing. Uh, and thanks as always to Nick Sims at Green Barge Audio for editing and producing the podcast. See you next week, everyone.